G'day guys, I'm Aaron Schultz with episode 153 of the Outback Mine podcast. Appreciate you joining in once again. A leadership. Are you a leader or have you had a leader? I reckon we've all had leaders in in our lives, whether that be at school, at work, uh, sport, whatever it may be. I reckon if I've had a hundred leaders, I could only probably uh, name five that were really good, uh, to be honest. Um, you know, leadership is, um, I believe it, it can be a natural thing. It, it really can't be learned. Well, maybe it can, but you know, it's got to be embraced from the heart center. You know, a true leader is not doing it because of ego, they're doing it because they really care about the individuals and who's in their care primarily. And, um, you know, it's something that's, um, that I reckon needs to be addressed. A lot of workplaces have got poor leadership uh, and sporting clubs also as well. Um, you know, if we've got, you've got a really, uh, I suppose, uh, good leader and they're really interested in their people and the development of those people, then the results can be tremendous. So, um, you know, uh, it's such a, a major thing. Um, you know, and today's uh, guest, Joel Tunstall, um, is a tremendous leader. He had 17 years in the Australian Army, uh, toured Afghanistan, he was a major in the Army, so certainly um, operated at a higher level. Now, we're going to be able to learn from uh, Joel today uh, quite a bit about what it takes to uh, manage people, uh, manage people in combat, uh, manage people. Uh, under pressure and how to how to basically you know look after your own well-being as a leader if you are a leader I think that's really important we can quite often give a lot to other people but really uh, our own well-being can suffer so we're going to talk to Joel about that how he did manage himself when he was uh, challenged but also what he does to manage himself now and uh, what he's doing post his army career he was in there for 17 years so long time and um, it's pretty difficult for the, a lot of these uh, ex-service people to sort of transition out into modern society. So uh, we will uh, hear about those trials and tribulations with Joel today. I'm sure you're going to really enjoy this chat. I uh, just want to make a special mention to Green Nutritionals who support the podcast. So if you're lacking something in your in your diet or you need a bit of a boost, uh, I really encourage you to check out their products there. Purely organic, sourced from the best places around the world. Um, they use uh, absolute quality ingredients and packaging so um, you know the best on the market by a long way I think so if you could please check out their website and help them out uh, support them it would be uh, appreciated website is greennutritionals.com.au their products are available at all good health food stores around Australia and online so please uh, please check them out and, uh, and give them a go really appreciate it alright appreciate your feedback on this uh, uh, chat with Joel uh, email me at support at outbackmind.com.au G'day, Joel. How are you, mate? Good, Aaron. Yourself? Right. Very well, mate. Thank you. We're, we're enjoying some nice weather, as you are down there at the moment, so um, certainly can't complain. Um, you know, it's, it's like life. You take the good with the bad, and we'll, we'll take the good while it's here, I reckon. That's for sure. So. Absolutely, yeah. The, uh, the coastal weather this time of year is pretty good, so it's, um, it definitely makes it easier to, to chill out after a hard day's work when you can go for a nice little swim and not sweat too much. For sure, mate. Absolutely. I, yeah, I'm really grateful for you coming on and having a chat, mate. Um, really interested to hear about your journey, um, you know, getting through uh, the Defence Force and sort of coming out the other side of it. And um, 
what I'd really like to know is what life was like for you as a young fella and, um, you know, how you sort of transitioned into um, into the Defence Force primarily, um, you know, throughout your youth. Is it something that you inspired for, uh, towards or, or basically just um, it just happened naturally? Yeah, it's a good question. It's, um, it's a little bit interesting uh, for me. I find when we talk to a lot of leaders, be they military or not, there's always an element of uh, sport and team sport, and that was definitely the case for me that made me a bit more inclined for leadership. Um, I grew up on the Sunshine Coast and had a, a pretty nice upbringing there, and I was heavily involved in surf life saving and, and pool swimming, so I used to compete in surf Ironman and swimming. And through that, I loved being around teams and I loved being uh, uh, competitive. And through my schooling, I guess I developed a, an interest in the military really organically. There was no really extensive family history uh, at all. But as I started pondering all those questions that you do through high school about uh, what the future may hold and where you want to go, I found myself realising that uh, pure academics and going to university wasn't really the thing for me. I wanted to be physically tested as well as mentally. And um, early on as most uh most young people you have a little uh dream of being a pilot and i was uh i was no different and i had some great illusions of being a, an amazing fighter pilot but then i realized uh that was not going to be the case with my math scores the way they were i was a bit of an english buff uh and uh eventually after doing a few years in air force cadets as a kid uh, i ended up going through the recruiting stage um in year 12 and all roads sort of pointed towards Army and I was lucky enough to have a couple of good recruiters who uh, led me down the right path and then after doing your, your basic aptitude and things like that, they sort of started steering me towards the Royal Military College Duntroon and the, the officer entry. Amazing, mate. So, <laughs> pardon me. So, <coughs> pardon me, God. You had to have um, like reasonably good marks to get in there, is that right? Yeah, so there's a, there was a whole barrier <laughs> of testing when I went in, which was you know, about 17 odd years ago now, but uh, you did an initial aptitude test, just one of those generic sort of online quizzes, and then they group everyone who applied into um, score percentiles. And there was, uh, from my understanding, there was a, a barrier cutoff for aptitude for um, the option to start applying for officer entry. Mm. Luckily enough, I was above that. And then it was about a six month process after that of all sorts of um uh testing and trials there were medical examinations there were interviews with uh civilian recruiters then military officer recruiters then uh psychologists and a whole heap of things which culminated in a uh a final selection day for army officer entry where uh at that stage uh you get f uh taken to an army base and you basically have a a day of trials where it's uh, 10 candidates in front of a panel of military officers and military psychologists and you just get uh, put through a series of tests both both physical and academic um, and then a month or so later you get a nice letter in the post telling you whether you've made it or not <laughs> unreal mate I, uh, I like what you said before about leadership and um, being able to do a role which was physical and mental as well. And uh, it's pretty rare, actually. So uh, it's interesting that you sort of had that insight as a young fellow and obviously the sporting background would have, um, you know, helped pr pr propel that, I suppose. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I've, I've got to give credit to my father here, sitting me down probably around year 10 with one of those fork in the road conversations where we sort of summed up looking at uh, potential of trying to become a version of an elite athlete and what that looks like in terms of pool swimming or surf life saving and what the, the future holds, longevity in the career and what life after sport is versus uh versus other career options and they knew that i was pretty interested in the military through my air force cadets and i was academic to some regard and it was that sort of moment that went oh, okay potentially full-time athlete whether i would have even made it or not is not the right pick for me because uh just my own aspirations but then that being said uh full-time university wasn't exactly it and you know I, I ended up getting accepted into uni we all had to apply um in year 12 and i i got accepted for a bachelor of sports and exercise science mm. uh but at the same time i also got my letter of offer to go to the royal military college and uh mm. it was a pretty pretty easy choice for me but i think where i see a lot of my my peers um uh, and friends who go off and do academic pursuits and things like that they have to fulfill that uh that physical itch external to that with sport and recreation and things like that whereas by the benefit of um physicality being such a large part of being an army officer yeah absolutely mate and also being paid to do it too uh, rather than sort of going through uni and uh and not having an income would have been pretty tr attractive as well i would have thought so um, it's a bit, bit of a bonus oh absolutely and um especially now that i've been out of the military for nearly three years it's uh it's that interesting aspect where normally every uh every work day starts with physical training in the morning and you're getting paid to be there and do some physical training and have a shower and have yeah. some breakfast um and you know you, you start to realize what an integral part of your preparedness and capability your well-being is yes absolutely we'll, we'll, we'll sort of dive into more of that or more of that as we go along and yeah, you're certainly um, yeah, talking my language with regards to that setup for the day and uh, what the physical body can do for our mental well-being, that's for sure. So it's interesting, mate, um, with regards to you know, your transition. So did you find it difficult being away from home uh, down in Canberra, like away from the ocean and that type of thing and away from your mates and family uh, first and foremost? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I was uh, fortunate at the time so long ago to have been accepted straight out of uh, high school. So I was 18 when I started, which was quite young, one of the youngest ones in my intake. Uh, and I come from a from a nice, tight Sunshine Coast family. Um, we never had holidays. I'd never been on a plane before. No one in my family had been overseas. Mm. Uh, why would you feel the need to when you live on the Sunshine Coast? <laughs> I guess, but uh, it was a it was a, a I was a fish out of water, um, quite literally. Mm. Uh, being in Canberra, very cold climate, first time on a plane away from home. Uh, so there were some pretty unique challenges there, and I think uh, Duntroon, which is uh, at that stage was an eighteen month course. Is quite a demanding course and you're basically trying to find every trick under the sun to cope find resilience de-stress and my usual methods of getting in the ocean in any form were pretty much robbed from me so mm. uh, uh it was it was pretty difficult times and you end up doing all sorts of silly things like having a 
a bucket of sand in your room just to put your feet in and scrunch <laughs> your feet around in sand just for a bit of semblance of home. <laughs> um, and uh, I do remember a few winter days where we, a few friends and I would declare it a beach day, even though it was probably minus two degrees in Canberra, we were wearing uh, board shorts, singlets with Ugg boots on, <laughs> quite the sight. <laughs> Incredible, mate. And um, I suppose one way to challenge yourself would be to get into Lake Burley Griffin early in the morning and um, have a swim because uh, that wouldn't be uh, too exciting, I wouldn't have thought either. So, Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we had, the, um, we had a, a heated pool there, but you don't have a great deal of free time when you're at Duntrin. So if you had a a day on the weekend you definitely try and do those sorts of things and jump in the water um and you know we, we do again physical training every morning and every time there was a session where it was scheduled in the pool or in the water i would just be absolutely frothing <laughs> to get down there whereas the majority of my my colleagues there were um city or country boys and they and girls and they um they weren't as excited as i was to be dunked in the cold water mate how long was your uh, your training there yeah, so it's an 18-month course, but I uh, I did a very difficult version of that because I ended up uh, uh, getting a couple of physical injuries in my first six months. So I had some issues with my knees, which was diagnosed at the time as um, ITV friction syndrome. So basically my leg would lock in place, which was really handy when you're doing some field navigation in the scrub on your own. Um, yes, yeah. And uh, I ended up entering into the uh, rehabilitation company there. So you have uh, four main companies, which are just groups of trainees. Think of like the old sports houses at school, that sort of mentality. And uh, one was for rehabilitating uh, trainees. And I ended up uh, staying there for 16 months because after I got the first knee operated on uh, and fixed up, the, the other knee ended up showing signs of the same thing. So I had both my knees operated on, uh, fully rehabilitated. And then I, um, uh, I ended up starting the course from scratch after 16 months in rehab. So it took me three years to get through Duntroon, mm -hmm. which was... Uh, quite a quite a taxing and difficult experience. Did you notice uh, any issues with your mental health throughout that period? Absolutely. Uh, it, I have the benefit of hindsight now, and again, you know, I was 18 and 19 when I was going through that 16 uh, months of rehab. Uh, and to, to put it concisely, the rehabilitation space and the programs around us then weren't ideal uh and so there was a lot of isolation uh there was not not a great training program in place it got a little bit better towards the end but predominantly you're left to your own devices to go to your physio surgery uh and that's kind of it there wasn't a great deal of focus on any um non-mainstream, non-surgical intervention rehabilitation. Um, there was physio, there was no chiro, there was no kinesiology, no um, naturopaths or anything like that. Uh, and uh, yeah, there was a lot of time. So predominantly you had a bunch of trainees who uh, dealt with the turmoil of being removed from training and you're isolated from your peers. So you're no longer allowed to uh, go up to your your old trainee company lines, so you weren't able to go to the the rooms where all your mates were. You weren't allowed to hang out with them. Uh, you weren't uh, following along in any classes. So it was a fair amount of isolation, and that led to a few 
mental health issues from what I saw, mm. uh, you know, in, in myself but towards the end of 16 months, um, although not diagnosed, uh, I think it would, would have been a level of depression. I was probably uh, a bit of a shadow of myself. I wasn't very engaging. I was probably pretty quick to anger. Mm. Um, and I just wanted to be left alone to my own devices to, to sort of crack on. And that was definitely a culmination point just before I went back into training where another, um, another trainee sort of said a few choice words to me and I had a few choice words back and then I said, hey, maybe I should take some leave for a couple of weeks before I go back into training just to go home, decompress, de-stress, come back actually mentally healthy, ready to go to start training again. But it was definitely a tough time and that um, I, I definitely think there was a link between the mental health degradation and the speed at which your physical wounds would heal. Absolutely, yeah. My, my word, when there's... Uh tension above the shoulders the body reacts to that we don't we don't sort of acknowledge or see it but you know when when the mind's calm the body can heal a lot quicker you know and uh uh when you're in that environment whether it be you know elite sport or, or in a in an elite role like that if your mind's you know constantly on um whether it be stuck in the past or the future then the body can't really you know do its job sort of thing you know so these are the sorts of things we need to try and help people uh you know get awareness of and understand i suppose Absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot of stress and pressure. I guess it's akin to a lot of the uh, elite athletes who talk about their time during injury. Mm. You're on a ticking clock for how long that organisation is going to want to keep you around for. And that was definitely the same at Dunshroon, where there was a very set process of how long you had to rehabilitate from a specific injury. And uh, that time frame was reviewed every six months in front of a, a board of people. And effectively, if you had two bites of that cherry, they'd look at terminating your service. So mm. your, your career would be over. And that was definitely a worry for me because I went from one injury, one knee to the same injury in another knee. But luckily, they were treated as two separate injuries. So mm. they just reset the clock, which allowed me to stay there for 16 months, whereas normally they would have uh, potentially tried to commence termination processes against my service because I didn't heal in time. So mm. that stress in the background of your mind of the impending doom of your entire career ending before it's really started um, definitely doesn't assist in the rehabilitation process. Yeah, absolutely, mate. I agree. You've got to have some compassion, but from a business point of view, you've got to have some uh, some deadlines and guidelines and that around it too. It's a, it's a really fine line, I suppose. And um be interested to sort of see, mate, when you did uh, progress out of there, what was your next role once you sort of graduated and moved through into the uh, mainstream? Yes, I was lucky enough. Um, I, I got selected to the Royal Australian Army Ordnance Corps, which was my, my first preference. So that makes me a logistics officer by trade. So providing um, soldiers, um, sales and with everything they need to get the job done. Uh, and w within that, I somehow again uh you know 20 21 year old joel thought about his future and went well what's future look like after military and um although i was somewhat drawn to more combat oriented roles um i thought maybe potentially getting some logistics skill sets under my belt would be better long term mm. but the the benefit of being in the ordnance corps and logistics is it's kind of a choose your own adventure novel in terms of your posting uh options Whereas, uh, you know, if you're a specific combat corps, if you're a tank commander or an infantryman, you're going to serve the majority of your time in infantry units or in armoured units. Whereas as a logistician, I can be uh, with tankies for two years, I can be with infantry for two years, aviation for two years, I can do deep level procurement supply chain management. 
and um, and it suits all different flavours. So for myself, I like being attached up close to the front lines or with combat units. So that's predominantly where my career took me. Um, whereas some of my peers like doing deeper level logistics, fleet management, procurement stuff, and that's where they went. So I was lucky enough for my first posting to be sent up to Darwin. Um, so from one extreme to the other, from cold to hot, and uh, I served in the 1st Aviation Regiment, uh, which is the attack helicopter regiment for Australia, um, at the time transitioning from the old venerable Kiowa onto the uh, um, reconnaissance helicopter uh, Tiger. At the time I was there. Interesting stuff, mate. And um, your physical body was obviously on the mend and better. Did you do much physical work yourself, obviously, because you were in more of a management role um, to look after your mental health? Were you, were you actually like pretty active as an individual or were you sort of behind a desk most of the time? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, as, a, as an army officer, you're obviously never going to be um, as physically active and the types of tasks you're, you're doing definitely will never reach the same physicality level as a, a soldier. But uh, inherent in the army culture and ethos is uh, quite a high level of physicality and readiness, especially in your junior officer years. You know, I'm a lieutenant in the army at that stage. I'm 21 years old. You're leading around 30 people. Uh, and so you are expected to be up the front with them and at all ranks in the military you're expected to be able to do anything you ask your soldiers to do so no matter how high the rank you dig your own pit in the ground when you're outfield you set up your own tent or you help set up your command post uh, and things like that and the other thing is um, within the military physicality and uh, uh, i guess that physical appearance uh, an example is one of the easiest ways to win very simple brownie points. You don't have to be the fittest or the best, but if you're in the top third during PT in the morning, running, swimming, whatever it may be, your your troops predominantly will look up to that and respect that and bosses out there um, um, doing the same sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So we would do PT with our, uh, our platoon and our squadron uh, uh, every day, so five days a week. Uh, and you'd muck in there and uh, and do the exact same things. So that was kind of the rule during physical training that whoever was running the training session, it could be a, a corporal or a sergeant or it could be a lieutenant, but whoever it was was in charge of the session. It didn't matter what rank you had on your chest during the session. You did what you were told and you did everything that any soldier did as well. Mm, amazing, mate. As a 21-year-old, you're running 30 guys. How, how old were those guys? Were they much old, uh, sorry, older than you? Yeah, I had, a, I had a bit of a mix, but m- the majority of them were older than me because I'm in logistics as a, as a trade. You end up with a lot of um, uh, wise old heads there and a lot of really technical tradesmen and women. Mm. And uh, so I had probably four or five really uh, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, but the rest, and especially my, uh, my junior leaders, so my corporal, sergeant, and warrant officers, were all much, much older than me. But they're amazing, mate, and it's, it's great to see that they might have had the respect for you because of what you'd actually been through, and, uh, you know, they, they recognise the level of the training that you've done. So in modern worlds, you know, where we don't have the educational levels that they probably have in the military, there wouldn't be a lot of respect for a young leader possibly in the workplace, but uh, primarily in a sporting club, well, I think it's a different story. You've seen like, young captains come in and they've basically got the respect of their uh, their outfit pretty quickly, whereas back in the old days it may not have been that way. But um, 
it's interesting to sort of see, you know, you, you're sort of thrust into a role like that at, at such a young age and obviously been able to handle it pretty well. How was, uh, how was life from there uh, for you? Like, where was the next transition for you as far as your leadership was concerned? Uh, yeah, and, and that's a really great point about, I guess, ageism as I see it as well. Uh, because I think the military has been around so long, the system exists and it's kind of the known entity that junior officers are young. And, mm. you know, you're also taught through your training to heed the advice and seek the advice of your more senior non-commissioned officers. Mm. The accountability and responsibility still lies with me to make the decision, but you're very strongly encouraged to to seek out that wisdom. Mm. Uh, but everyone knows that's the example, and that's why you try and seek out those easy wins of physicality and things like that, and just try and be a sponge and learn as much as you can. And that was one of the stark things I, I found interesting when I left the military uh, in transition, that they there does seem to be quite a lot of ageism in the corporate and private industries and uh and you know i i left at 33 32 33 years old um still deemed young enough to be uh i guess discriminated against in people's perceptions because of your your lack of age mm-hmm. uh but from there i guess uh, uh after first aviation regiment i bounced through a bunch of different roles uh, so I ended up in a logistics battalion, uh, uh, being the assistant adjutant, which is kind of the, the, the assistant disciplinarian for the unit. Uh, and then I bounced into another aviation regiment, the transport regiment, uh, and, and through some other challenges. In that period, I had a couple of interesting exercises where I was sent to America uh, to observe some training over there. And I also exercised in Papua New Guinea alongside the Papua New Guinea Defence Force. Mm. Um, so that were, again, probably some, some interesting challenges during those early 20s. Mm, amazing, mate. That's a uh, that's pretty pretty good experience by the time you're maybe even 25 and your brain's still developing, I suppose, isn't it? You know, So yeah, you're, you're, you're uncovering a lot sort of in, that, in those formative years. It's amazing that... Um, to, to think about it, like as a, as a young guy, did you observe mental health challenges with some of those large teams that you were, um, you were, you were sort of managing then and did you actually know how to recognise them? Yeah, it was, it, it was probably slowly developing in um, our collective consciousness and, and my own personal one. Um, during that period, uh, peers had been uh, in Timor, deployed to Timor, and we were just just sort of starting to go to Iraq. And so the, the contemporary knowledge wasn't great, but you were starting to see the emergence of some mental health issues and we were starting to slowly get a few more uh, uh, briefs on psychology and resilience and things like that, which was kind of annual training at the start of each year. Um, but definitely sort of after that the early stages of my career as I broached into my captain years, uh, you, I, I saw a really steep incline uh, in terms of our learning, knowledge and sharing and exposure to uh, mental health issues uh, and training in preparation uh, and resilience for it. Mm, yeah, amazing, mate. Um, I guess, you know, we've still progressed a few years um, you know, since then and uh, obviously... Things may have changed. Well, I think we'll talk about um, you know the military's view on, on that as we as we go along here. But um, as an individual, like you, you 
did you have a, a relationship? Were you, did you have a wife and, and children at the time when you were sort of traveling all around the world or um, were you still flying solo? I was, uh, I was flying solo, so I had the, uh, the, the usual amount of attempted uh, relationships and dating and things like that, but nothing ever got any more serious than that mm. uh, when I was in Townsville. So I think I'd just been promoted to captain. I ended up with a, uh, an amazing Labrador cross beagle, <laughs> uh, my, my lovely dog Molly, and uh, she has been my companion throughout my whole military career. And um, she just recently turned 13 and is um, still kicking around at the moment. So that was my my main emotional support crutch uh, throughout my entire career. Uh, it, it was just very hard. Um, you know, there's obviously a bit of luck in relationships um, and finding the right people. But uh, if, for my career, I was posted into a new geographic location every two years uh, minimum and sometimes shorter than that. Um, every year you change job. And I was, I was chasing my career pretty hard, pretty fast. Um, and, you know, when I say when I'm rally to America, that was three weeks. Papua New Guinea was two months. I deployed to Timor for six and a half months. I eventually deployed to Afghanistan for seven and a half months. So our 15 years, it's a lot of time uh, away and in, uh, in weird little towns and regions where it makes it rather hard to find that stability. Um, some of my mates did it and hats off to them. Mm, amazing, mate. Let, let me sort of fast track, th- fast track things a little bit here. When were the most challenging, uh, the most challenging times for you as an individual throughout that whole process, with regards to, you know, your own well-being as as as, as an individual? And when was it really hard as a, you know, a soldier or a member of the military to be in an environment which was really tough and challenging? Uh, yeah. So Afghanistan, uh, the two are uh, uh, dealing with it at the time so the resilience to stay mission focused and fit for purpose and then obviously in the years post that and um it, it's funny in preparation for for talking to you today i was trying to think about different hardships through my career and definitely that time in rehab at Duntroon was was difficult with very little insight and knowledge and assistance whereas uh you know coming out of afghanistan i was much uh, much more cognizant. I had a greater learning and understanding of what I needed to do. And even then it was still hard and I didn't get everything right. Uh, but effectively, uh, I served in Afghanistan for seven and a half months. I said I was actually embedded in the United States um, Army. Uh, so I served in the US 3rd Infantry Division uh, in their high headquarters as an aide-de-camp, which is a, a, an aide to a general, uh, which meant very long days, 17 hour days most of the time. Uh, so six in the morning to about 11 at night. Uh, mission planning, so my boss needed to get around um, Afghanistan and you know, we'd plan missions to transit him safely from site to site. Uh, and then all sorts of meeting planning, looking after other staff, being part of the headquarters staff, sitting in, in high level briefs and things like that. So it's pretty high tempo stuff and um, then dealing with all the the, the trappings and tragedy of warfare, uh, you know, being in that role as an aide to a general, you're, uh, you're playing witness to a lot of the impacts, uh, the ramp ceremonies and purple heart ceremonies, so farewelling um, um, soldiers uh, who were killed in action or wounded in action, mm. um, and being in the American military, there was uh, a, quite a high rate of that. Mm. Uh, and keeping yourself mentally 
ready and energetically ready to crack on with each day for seven and a half months was quite a quite a challenge mm, no doubt mate is there any uh, any um episodes of trauma that that stand out uh, yeah, there'd be there'd be one or two, uh, and it's probably uh, more around either bearing witness or I guess um, survivors and commanders guilt if we group it as that. But for me, uh, witnessing all the ramp ceremonies and purple heart ceremonies, so purple hearts, purple hearts, an American medal which they award to any uh, uh, soldier who is wounded in action. Mm. Um, on the ground, what that meant was. Uh, you'd plan a mission during the day to get the boss somewhere and there's a you know it could be six or seven levels of headquarters between the decision to do that our planning and the the team who have to execute that out at whatever province we're going to um, and part of that could be what they call route clearance package so a team would go out and drive some vehicles along the road that we we're going to drive to make sure there's no improvised explosive devices there and clear the route for the general to drive along Unfortunately, sometimes that means they uh, they come into contact with explosive devices and some are wounded or killed. Mm. Um, so the wounded would be flown to the trauma hospital at Kandahar, where I was based, uh, down the south of Afghanistan, and uh, they would receive life-saving surgery. Mm. And then, as, as with normal surgery, after you've had the procedure, you head out into the recovery ward, uh, and you wait there till you're stable, and from there they would end up being uh, placed on a military flight, predominantly out to Ramstein uh, Air Base in Germany. The US had a, a base there, and they'd uh, receive further medical treatment. But in that period where they're in the ward room um, recovering, is when all the generals, staff, and the immediate team of that soldier would rush into that hospital theatre. Um, and it was a matter of honour and pride for the commanding general to present the Purple Heart to his team before they left. So mm. we would work to their clock. We would get up all hours of the day to go do this and we'd race in and read a quick citation, present their medal to them, and you'd wish them well. But um, that, that's a bit of a traumatic taxing one because you're looking at the repercussions of the missions that um, the team around you and yourself are planning. And... Um, you know, the, the soldiers are in um, different states of uh, medical treatment and have different injuries. Uh, so it's quite a, a graphic representation, I guess, just the, the, the rate at which we were doing that. And then also the ramp ceremony, sending, uh, sending them home, any of the fallen warriors. Mm. Um, that's, that's quite a, a heavy toll to bear. Mm, mate. You, you weren't really getting a mental health break for that seven months, would that be right? Yeah, uh, not, not really, especially when you're in the, the main driver, like I said, 17-hour days, you have not much time to, uh, to decompress and do things. So uh, my immediate team was a very small team of four, so the general, myself, our bodyguard and our driver, and we did uh, everything we could and every little trick in the book to um, to reset each day. And so, uh, obviously, the main tool that we all use is compartmentalisation. But as we come to know, you've got to actually do something after that to release that trauma and toxicity out of you. Mm. But each day, I would um, I would watch a, a a specific song, a bit of, bit of live footage of a concert that sort of de-stressed me and it felt like it washed the day away off of me so every night about nine o'clock I could 
watch that in the office while we're working away with headphones on and blast some rock music and get it off me and then uh each night uh before i went to sleep uh even though i was absolutely dog tired i needed to put um 20 minutes of whatever the most cringiest non-thoughtful comedy i could find on where i didn't have to think or engage my mind it just sort of flipped the switch off enough in my brain for me to sleep and hit that rem cycle and not be consciously winding through my decisions of the day and the only other thing we did was um we managed to get about an hour and a half break each day to hit the gym uh and that was that was the the religious thing we did every day just to um I guess uh, hit the gym, sweat out some uh, some toxins, and get some anger out, or whatever it may be, get some endorphins flowing. Mm. But those were those were kind of the three things that we had to do each day just to stay battle ready. Other than that, you get a two week holiday um, uh, for that duration of tour. Uh, but mine was taken at five and a half months in, so it was five and a half months of uh, non-stop seventeen hour days. Mm. Uh, then two weeks, and you. You know, I chose to do a little um, holiday tour around Europe because it was easier to fly there than back to Australia. And, uh, you know, the, the culture shock of leaving 50 degrees in uh, Afghanistan and flying into minus eight London and then doing a little 12-day tour around Europe and then fly back into Kandahar. It was quite a bit of a shock to the system. Mm, so you weren't sitting in a bar drinking schooners or pints. You, you were basically still keeping yourself... Uh, mentally uh, mentally balanced, I suppose, by getting out and amongst it. But it would have been pretty uh, easy just to sit in a pub for that period of time, I would have thought. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's part of the reason why I chose to get on a little tour group rather than take myself around because, yeah, it would have been very easy to just post up in a bar somewhere with a nice view and just uh, mm-hmm. drink, uh, drink the holiday away. But mm-hmm. not to say I didn't enjoy a, a cold German beer here and there, but... Uh, it was good being on tour because a lot of it was sightseeing and I always had a, a, a very amateur interest in ancient history so it was kind of cool doing the tours around uh, you know Rome and uh, the rest of Italy and France and Germany so that kept me engaged and at least through the majority of the day we were too busy to be able to grabbing pints and doing some of those more destructive coping strategies. Mm, amazing mate tell me what was the bodyguard what was his qualifications that you had looking after you and the general and the driver? Yeah, he was exceptional, exceptional bloke, Coxie, and uh, he was actually an Air Force flight sergeant. So uh, they have uh, a, a course that their uh, uh, their version of infantry, I guess, airfield defence guards at the time could do, and they did uh, close personal protection courses, so learning how to uh, basically bodyguard and look after a, a principal. Uh, he was a very, very experienced sage old hand, and um, so yeah, he'd done his close personal protection courses. His whole career was about um, uh, defending secure, uh, secured sites for the air force, and um, he was he was a wealth of knowledge and a really handy guy to have around with mission planning and things like that. So you know, um, especially on the nitty gritty stuff of planning entry and exit points and stuff like that in specific buildings, because at the end of the day, he was the man who stood beside the boss. Uh, at all times ready to, to drag him out of anywhere that he needed to uh, to get out of. So that was pretty good. And um, uh, young Mick, the driver, was another young Air Force uh, airman. He was a, a leading aircraftsman, so quite a quite a junior guy. But he'd, he'd uh, put his hand up. He was actually an avionics mechanic, so he was used to 
fixing fighter jets and things like that and he he um cross trained and did some driving courses and things like that and got the job and he um he would drive us around wherever we needed to go on base and um look after a lot of the administrative things around the office so he was a he was a godsend in keeping the the, the simple stuff running really smoothly for us american guys those two were actually aussies so within the us third infantry division they normally had uh three uh three generals uh and for this tour they had basically left one of their generals teams at home in the states and asked for an australian team to come in and it's part of their embedded policy of trying to get their coalition partners involved with them and so uh the the boss was a an army brigadier uh and uh then obviously i was an army captain at the stage and then two air force guys came in so we were just this little australian team embedded in this um this coalition headquarters predominantly americans but there are a few different nations in there um uh some uh you know romanians and bulgarians and the canadian and a little mix but it was predominantly based on american headquarters Mm, amazing mate so your relationship with uh with uh, these foreign entities would be pretty strong as an individual with some of the relationships you, uh, you built within that time. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's that old saying of being forged in fire and, um, uh, you know, I, I definitely felt quite a strong kinship to the Americans. I, I basically consider myself to have been a, a, uh, an American for seven and a half months of my life, honorary status, <laughs> and uh, uh, and you definitely have that um, that veteran kinship with them. You know, there's not too many Australian service people who had my type of experience, uh, and so you know, I stay in contact with my American mates. Uh, we keep an eye on out for each other, and it's just again one of those other challenges when it comes to um, dealing with trauma outside. You know, the Australian Defence Force. Uh, uh, or the veteran community does a lot to keep connected and hold functions and old deployment teams catch up and things like that. It's a little bit harder for me when they catch up in the States and I'm here in Australia. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely a lot of video chats and, um, and messages and things like that to, you, uh, to stay connected to your, uh, your team who you served with. Amazing, mate. And um, that camaraderie is probably a fairly big strength because it was sort of developed in your youth through surf lifesaving and so forth, I would have thought. So you're able to sort of transition uh, into that uh, environment through your training and obviously through uh, through the Defence Force. And it's interesting, we'll, we'll, we'll get on to what you're doing now, but working solo as an individual like you are now um, is, um, is probably a little bit challenging because you haven't got the teammates around you as much. But um, before we sort of get to, you know, you're moving out of the Defence Force, um, is, there, is there any, any like, uh, you know, one moment or one time where you really doubted yourself and you sort of thought, why the hell am I here? Why are we doing this? That type of thing. You know, you sort of question the agenda, why the war was happening and that type of thing. Yeah, it was probably more the seminal moment towards the end of my career. I think it's pretty similar for most military people where they know for three, four, five years that they um, they need to start thinking about leaving. But, you know, it's a, it's a very big system, a big beast, and, um, you know, for all the right reasons, they break you down and build you back up and you're a little bit institutionalised, but um, that makes it all the harder to say goodbye. And... Uh, I guess for me, especially having joined at 18 and doing 15 years and all the rest of it, 
um, it's a little bit scary going into the big bad outside world and everyone says that you, um, you know, it won't be as easy and you won't be welcomed and you don't have corporate skills and all these different things which partly might be a little retention trap for the military but partly also uh, uh, just a lot of nonsense. But for me, myself, I was, I was fortunate enough to have achieved everything I wanted to achieve in my military career. I, um, I was lucky enough to go back to Duntroon as an instructor and company commander I've been a company commander in an, uh, of the logistics company in an infantry battalion, finished out as an operations officer of a big logistics battalion. I've been deployed a couple of times. So I'd achieved everything, whereas a lot of veterans um, voluntarily or involuntary leave before they have achieved everything, um, depending on what era you served in, were we going overseas, were we not, did you get the right jobs or the rank that you felt like you needed to get. Um, I was lucky, so I ended up, uh, in my last six months, I was on a really large uh, field exercise with most of the Defence Force out of Shoalwater Bay, mm -hmm. uh, up the North, North Queensland coast, yep. and uh, I was the Operations Officer of a Logistics Battalion, so we had uh, about 900, 1,000 soldiers all providing logistic support to the whole, um, the whole activity. And we're, we're being tactically tested in the field environment. So we're camouflaged up, we're digging trenches in the ground, the enemy, the fake enemy are trying to hunt us and there are other Australian soldiers playing the enemy. Um, but we're also trying to pump fuel and re um, repair medium-grade vehicles and provide food, ammunition and medical evacuation to the front line. And uh, it's it's a very challenging thing to do. And it means that every few days you're basically um, up stumps and moving to a whole new site outfield so the enemy can't get a, a fix on your position. Mm -hmm. And practically what that means is... Um, I have to keep my command post that I'm running on behalf of the commanding officer up and running as long as possible. And you draw down the entire uh, uh, battalion around you, which can be, you know, around two to five grid squares on the ground of stuff. Um, you start drawing it down, packing up on the trucks, getting ready to move and slowly tearing down my headquarters. But it means you're filling in the pit that you just dug two days ago through hard ground and you're dropping your tents and stuff like that. And there was, a, there was a really seminal moment that sticks in my head where uh, we'd had another long day and I think it must have Call from zero. been myself and my uh, my battle captain, I was a major at the time, so one of my trusted guys who, funnily enough, I'd, um, uh, I'd trained through Duntroon um, as an instructor myself and Russ and I um we're exhausted and a bit grizzly and we walked out to where we were setting up our, our sleeping area for the night and of course you can't leave your sleeping area up all day because it's a sign for the enemy to see so we're there at night everything's damp and dewy and i'm pulling out my uh my hoochie which is a, a very poor excuse for a tent <laughs> out of my pack and i'm trying to set it up in trees in the dark sopping wet put my sleeping bag down um and i just had this moment of realization where i'm like i've been doing this for 15 years and i've not only trained for it i've done it overseas uh a few times i've been tested and it's great that i'm training these people and i'm helping them i know why we're doing it but i think 
this is the last time I'm going to be setting up my sleeping gear in darkness, mm. in the wet. Mm. Uh, and I, I just knew in that moment then that I'd had enough and I didn't have the will or desire to keep doing that that version of life for myself. So uh, we finished the exercise um, on a really big high and uh, I bid farewell to the military. Mate, uh, just, just uh, backtracking, the Singapore Army is involved with that project up there as well, is that right? Yeah, they're involved at times. So um, we invite different um, different partners along for that one. It's a big certification exercise for the uh, Australian Defence Force to ensure that we always have a force ready um, to a training level to go overseas for any operations that may come our way. So we normally have um, small detachments from anything from Singaporeans, Japanese, uh, Self-Defence Force, uh, we have uh, Americans, Papua New Guinea, uh, all, all sorts of partners come along uh, and contribute different assets and people for the, for the exercise. Mate, um, so when you decided it was time to get out, how long did that uh, exit uh, take? It would have, uh, wouldn't have been something that they would have looked upon favourably or was it like accepted pretty, pretty quickly and, uh, and you moved on? Yeah, it definitely depends on what role you're sitting in and uh, what trade skills you have and things like that. I'd already had a few preliminary discussions with my commanding officer um, uh, who was the, the biggest support I could have hoped for through that period as I'm trying to transition out. And uh, we sort of settled on, let's finish this exercise, get the team certified, do a great job, and um, then he'll support me in doing everything I need to get out. But it's still about a six-month process in total. Uh, but fortunately enough, I was able to sort of melt away into the background a little bit and um, focus on all those things like uh, learning how to write a resume and getting a LinkedIn profile and figuring out what Medicare is and how you go to a doctor now and uh, doing all your, your transition medicals and things like that. So um, it is a long process. And then you're looking at 15 years of equipment and gear and you're looking at what they uh, initially issued you 15 years ago and you're thinking, where the heck is that bit of kit that I've got to hand back? And you're sort of praying that the uh, quartermaster is quite kind on you when you hand back a lot of your equipment. Yeah, <laughs> So, yeah, interesting experience to go through. But, yeah, about six months in total. So, mate, this this is really important for people listening to this that may be looking to either get out of a sporting career or get out of a, uh, um, you know, a workplace or whatever. Did you have a lot of self-doubt when you sort of uh, come back into the real world? Yeah, I definitely had a healthy dose of it. I wasn't completely pessimistic um, or, or downtrodden, um, and I had a lot of a lot of mates who had transitioned and a lot of support around me, thankfully, and a lot of wisdom there. But uh, it was definitely challenging. I myself had chosen that I uh, needed to get back to the ocean lifestyle. That was my happiness, uh, and I needed to get back to my roots. So I ended up uh, uh, moving to the Gold Coast and getting settled in uh, on the Goldie. Uh, whereas predominantly most military officers, a lot of my peers sort of settle in capital cities and they end up working for um, uh, private enterprise contracting back to defence, um, you know, Boeing, KPMG, NIOA, different companies like that. Mm -hmm. For me, I kind of looked at it as more of a chapter close, new chapter start, and I didn't necessarily want to get too involved in defence industry. So I made everything harder on myself, that's for sure. Uh, but 
I uh, I knew that I had transferable skills, but I also knew that no one uh, would really recognise too many of them. And the Australian social consciousness isn't too savvy on what skill sets uh, servicemen and women have uh, that are transferable. Uh, and even though I'm a logistics specialist and have all the civilian RTO-compliant qualifications under the sun there, it was still a bit of a battle for me to find my way through uh, and to be able to, to work, find remuneration, find valuable work as well was quite challenging for me. So I knew that I would need to take some, I guess, lower level jobs to build up a network and build up some experience or at least some perception of experience uh, in the outside world. Uh, and I, I knew it would be a challenge to get to where I wanted to go. So I, uh, I dived headfirst into volunteerism with Surf Life Saving. So my first passion became my new passion again. And uh, I was very, very fortunate to uh, join the Surfers Paradise Surf Life Saving Club where I ran into the president of the club pretty quickly, who was the, the great Trevor Hendy. Uh, who very quickly listened to my story a bit and um, uh, and asked me to nominate for his management committee. So um, that definitely gave me a leg up and let me utilise some of my skills that I had that I was in fear of them attriting whilst I was doing, uh, I guess, not, not so ideal uh, civilian jobs professionally until I grew that network and that base. But... It was, uh, it was a bit of a slog and most contemporary research into it at the moment for veterans says about one to three years for transition for someone to sort of come out of it and out the other end, which usually means um, sort of hitting a version of rock bottom and then building themselves back up. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely a, um, a challenge that's been researched quite heavily and through things like the, uh, the Royal Commission into Veteran Suicide uh, mm -hmm. and the National Commissioner as well. Amazing, mate. So throughout that process, we, we sort of talked about your, uh, your, your, your passion for, for the physical body and, and mental health. You obviously were able to keep yourself pretty fit and motivated through that, that transition period. And obviously getting into the surf lifesaving and, and those sorts of things was, uh, was an important part. But I guess for the average person listening to this, just anything that they can use a physical body will help improve their mental well-being and start to give them some, some self-assurance, I guess. Absolutely. Um, for me, everything comes down to habits, basic habits, and you have to set them. And I guess everyone's heard about, you know, 10,000 repetitions of something to make, uh, to, to master it. There's some research out now about, uh, you know, it can be anything from 60 to 100 days to set a habit uh, in place. But, you know, I sort of lean back onto what I did through Afghanistan and other experiences through my military career, where it was keep the basics simple so you know that the night uh night before anything i would make sure i had uh you know my my training gear ready to go and i'd filled up my water bottle and then i could sleep knowing that i'd done that routine and i wake up on time nice and early i don't hit a snooze button um and i have a little breakfast and i go and train and i kept that habit so even i guess in my more darker periods where i was um, isolating myself and didn't have a big social network on the Gold Coast and didn't really have a great professional career, I still, no matter what, would get up early in the morning, go do a group training session uh, and get those endorphins flowing and that stuff going. That way I started the day on a positive, on a win at least, mm. 
and then each night preparing for the next day at least i had some semblance of control of my environment which sort of helps order your mind but those basic habits were critical and i've kept them up all the way through and life saving was a great outlet for it where uh, aside from my own personal fitness then most weekends i'd be training in the ocean or i'd be uh, on patrol with a team and thankfully i got to become a patrol captain and exert some leadership skills and I uh, became a trainer there as well, training new lifesavers. So I was able to use some of those skills in good ways whilst maintaining that physicality. But those basic habits, basic routines were absolutely critical um, to my mental health and being able to uh, not fall off the, the rails. Mm, well said, mate. And just don't tell Trev you've been eating before you train because he'll, uh, he'll crucify you. He's big into the intermittent fasting. So... Um, <laughs> absolutely yeah 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 the old fasting to, to be truthful it's normally a bit of a banana or a fruit bowl or something afterwards um yeah. but uh yeah i won't tell him about the pre-workout i have either when i hit the gym <laughs> otherwise i'll be in trouble that's it and uh yeah he uh, often talks about having the wheat bix before he went and did stuff but now he doesn't have anything so interesting stuff mate it might have been vitabits i don't know who sponsored him back then but anyway mate um i'd like to know with your leadership skills and experience, are you putting them into practice and transition now? Are you actually doing um, some stuff to help other people with regards to you know learning new habits and becoming better individuals and better leaders as well? Yeah, absolutely. I obviously mentioned uh, uh, the surf club where I get to be part of a management team and help lead and, and train young individuals. I've also uh, just completing a, a, a term as a director of an RSL sub-branch where I was predominantly trying to design some strategic planning around contemporary veteran support. But uh, the, the main thing is after a few few jobs in the corporate sector, I came to realise that um, I, I had a lot of breadth of skills being a logistics officer, leader, trainer uh, and operational planner. Uh, it, it's very hard to utilise all that knowledge and skill in one role in a commercial entity and whether there's, um, you know, vertical hierarchy structures or office politics would come into play. And so uh, uh, sort of mid-last year, I decided it was time I kind of put my money where my mouth is and I started my own business, uh, Joel Tunstall Leadership Coaching, uh, where I've been quite lucky enough to pick up a few clients and I keep it as broad as possible um, and I, I kind of pride myself on walking into either a, a company, a team or an individual and listening to their story, listening to the signs and symptoms of some of the issues, be them corporate, personal, etc., and designing a bespoke training package around that. But quite a lot of the time, it always starts with those basic habits, basic systems, making sure you have the foundation set before you head on to, uh, I guess, the, the cooler stuff of the art of leadership uh, and doing that. But it's a lot of mentorship, uh, a lot of putting systems in place and using all those different skill sets. And, you know, I personally find it deeply rewarding and it's probably uh, uh, quite, quite good for me as well uh, mentally to be able to be out there using those skills and uh, placing some reason and purpose behind uh, the, the hardship that I went through to gain that experience and those skill sets and be able to help uh, help other people. Mm, amazing, mate. That's, that's yeah, really brave of you to be able to sort of sort of say, well, you know, maybe I haven't had an experience in running my own business or whatever, but been able to step out and, uh, you know, see, see what happens for you. Um, I guess, you know, for an individual or a business that's listening to this, if they're looking to 
to get some, um, some, some broader knowledge with regards to leadership, um, what would be worthwhile touching base about that and just sort of seeing where it could go? Yeah, absolutely, and um, and that's as easy as it needs to be. Come in, have a discussion, see where it can help. I've, I've you know, assisted management teams with basic structures and, and policy or meetings or how to conduct um, debriefings, performance management, things like that, to high-level mentorship and leadership philosophy, uh, talking about how you actually gain those beautiful things like culture and empowerment that we all talk about, but how you actually break that down, implement that in a in a workspace. So, uh, you know, like I said, I get great joy out of being able to go into uh, to other people's companies, businesses, and assist. And um, you know, th- there's a thirst for it, there's a need for it, and. Mm. Uh, you know, there's a there's a bunch of other veteran uh, veteran owned companies who are doing similar things where it's all about giving back and caring. And I guess at the end of the day, we've always been about service, and we just want to be able to be of service again. And uh, you know, utilize those skill sets. I'd hate to have all that stuff sort of sitting on the shelf rusting away. Mm, oh, for sure, mate. Now that's true. And yeah, utilizing the experience that you've had, and I reckon that's what makes a lot of people depressed. Like they've got these great skills and so forth and then I'll be able to, to utilise them. I know um, working in sort of recruitment for 15 years, like having uh, ex-soldiers come in and, um, you know, really they, no one was giving them a go. This was a few years back and I'd always sort of give them a chance because they had that self-discipline and, um, you know, they always ended up being tremendous, just like an ex-offender that's come out of jail. If they were, they were fair income and keen, you know, you give them a chance and uh, some guidance and, and, you know, they can be tremendous employees and, I just think, um, yeah, like, you know, someone that's, uh, that's looking to adapt as, uh, as, a, as an individual or, you know, adapt their business or grow their business, you know, you'd be a great person to speak to. So is there, a, is there an email address or uh, a website that people could check out, mate? Yeah, absolutely. The website uh, is joeltunstall.com. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn as well, just uh, just my name, Joel Tunstall, and I have an email which is uh, joel at joeltunstall.com. So nice and nice and simple there. So, mate, um, like you said about coming in and having a chat, if people that are remote, like working in other, um, you know, uh, states, you can still work with them. They don't have to be like, like based in the Gold Coast. Yeah, absolutely, and I think uh, in the uh, just coming out of the, the Corona apocalypse world, I think we're all getting pretty savvy with uh, online meetings, webinars, things like that. Of course, being in person be the, is always the preference, but um, I, I've worked with a bunch of clients now where we do online stuff, and especially companies, if I'm delivering a, a bit more of a keynote speech and they have a lot of entities across here, New Zealand, other places, uh, webinars the 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 tool of choice, Mm. Uh, especially while flights are a bit tricky and quarantine regulations change every day, it seems. Mm. So, uh, so absolutely reach out from anywhere and we can see how we can be of assistance. Appreciate it, mate. Look, it's been an awesome chat, Joel. I'm sure we're going to uh, catch up and, uh, and have more of these in the future, I reckon. And, um, yeah, look, uh, you know, just uh, be really proud of what you've been able to achieve as an individual. And, um, you know, the best is really yet to come, I, I think, for for what you're able to bring to the, you know, the, the civilian world now and what, um, what the benefits like, uh, you know, uh, the surf life-saving um, organisation that you're involved with uh, can actually uh, get from, from what you've been able to achieve. And, um, you know, um, yeah, any, any business out there, the same thing. You can bring lots to it where we sort of don't recognise uh, a lot of the time um, outside the academic world what's possible and how to see, through, see things through a, a fresh set of eyes. Um, you know, I think someone 
that's uh, looking for some guidance, um, you know, to have someone come in that's uh, really valuable like yourself or someone individually that, um, that may need some direction with their life, that investment can be pretty significant. So I really encourage anyone listening to, uh, to reach out and uh, hopefully, um, you know, you can help them. Great. Thanks. I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I look forward to talking more. Cheers, mate.